world Borealis Paradigm Expansion Greetings from the North, all citizens of the world. Welcome to Forum Borealis. The professor is back, this time to account for reticent aspects of science, energy, technology and existence, which can be considered a continuation of our former philosophical discussion on the hidden patterns of creation. But now at a more tangible level. Part 1 is rather technical, dealing with definitions and models of how existence is designed and wired with an examination of what physics actually imply. In part 2 we look into how repressed science has manifested throughout modern history, ever since the days of Keeley and Tesla, with examples of some key innovations attained and by whom. The reason I've invited Joseph Farrell on to deal with this topic is that he is a true Renaissance man, commanding a large number of subjects, both from his personal interest as well as through his formal education. Indeed, as a former professor with a PhD from Oxford University, he masters several interdisciplinary matters, including a long-life passion for subjects in which he's attained a skilled level, notwithstanding obscure physics and exotic sciences. Moreover, he is a respected documents researcher with mastery of all sorts of primary texts and has a creative ability to perceive new angles in old expositions connecting seemingly disparate dots and unearthing innovative solutions. Pharrell also has an artistic side as a lifelong classical composer and performer of the cembalo in the Baroque style of Bach, a major factor to why he captivates our attention, apart from his profound knowledge, is that he's not shy of scenario thinking, but as a decent scholar makes it clear when he hypothesizes and what his argued speculation is based upon. This allows us to draw our own conclusion and even pursue further various loose threads. For more details, go to our presentation page of him at our website, forumborealis.net, where you'll find Joseph's biography, a most complete bibliography, as well as various links to his online presence, including his website, blog, and popular members forum called Giza Death Star, after some of his early books. He is an outstanding prolific author, having written more than 40 books on various themes, including the topics dealt with today, which are mainly based upon two earlier books of his called Secrets of the Unified Field, subtitled the Philadelphia Experiment, the Nazi Bell and the Discarded Theory, and The Philosopher's Stone, Alchemy and the Secret Research for Exotic Matter.
Welcome back, uh, Joseph. Thanks for having me. Great to have you. Thanks for having me, Al. Yeah, and like you said to me, it's been a while, but um, today we're back in a classic. You know, back in the day, you used to, you and Georgian, you used to have like, one show per book or sometimes several shows per book <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah yeah and i loved it and people love it there are still classics available out there now i i was a bit inspired as you know from those days but we can't even begin to do something like that because you are pushing out new books more often than we are doing shows with you <laughs> so we're, <laughs> we're lagging behind but what we can do is try to take several books in one show mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and today I'm having in front of me two books. One is called Secrets of the Unified Field. A little morsel there, people, um, that has gone under the radar for many. The the subtitle, just so people get a little more insight into that, is The Philadelphia Experiment, The Nazi Bell, and The Discarded Theory. Mm-hmm. Of course, The Nazi Bell, that's in almost all your books. And then there's the other one called um, The Philosopher's Stone, Alchemy mm-hmm. and the Secret Research for Exotic Matter. Mm-hmm. And what these two books have in common, and a few others you have too, but uh, especially these two books, is that they are dealing with what we could call exotic science. Right. And that's exactly what I'd like to discuss with you today. Mm-hmm. And um, although you should at some point explain what uh, the unified field is, I'll mm-hmm. I'll start by asking you because I you know I had your own von Straten on, yeah, mm-hmm. and to listeners who don't know that's uh, one of the um, spiders behind uh, Breakaway uh, Civilization Secret Space Program conferences, right? But he's also having these conferences about breakthrough energy, right? And he corrected me. He said that. Um, um, the term free energy or zero point energy isn't that <laughs> hot anymore. It's like uh, it's become, um, well, I try to avoid using it. Mm-hmm. So, uh, my first question is what does even zero point mean? Well, zero point energy arises principally out of the way that a British physicist by the name of Paul Dirac formulated quantum mechanics and he posited that and actually demonstrated in uh, mathematically that even in vacuum space at zero degrees absolute zero there was still an energy background and he went on to uh, show that this energy background really is what gives rise to the visible world as we know it. it gives rise to particles and so on and so forth so he he basically took the final step in quantum mechanics to to posit this kind of all-pervasive uh all-encompassing energy field and if you want to look at it in a kind of an analogical sort of way to what had happened previously in physics 
what he did was he kind of formulated a quantum mechanical version of of the older idea of an ether luminiferous, this all-pervasive substance that supposedly in the 19th century physics version that electromagnetic waves waved on, <laughs> if I can mm. be that blunt about it. But that's essentially what he did. So the, the, zero, the term zero-point energy is actually a technical term for this kind of endless sea of energy that that if if i can put it in his terms foams into and that's that's his one of his expressions is kind of a hmm. a foam that that you know emerges into the partic the particle world and then ultimately into the macrocosmic world so it's kind of a it's even if you want to reach way back al to to ancient egyptian doctrine with the idea of the all-pervasive mat or the yeah. star wars force that's essentially what what dirac did uh, so that's interesting it has to do with temperature but it's uh, presumably mm -hmm. celsius uh it's kelvin uh kelvin, in, okay. in, yeah in measurements of temperature in physics you use you use the kelvin scale which is considered to be the most accurate so i don't even know right offhand what what absolute zero would be in, expressed in terms of of the celsius scale and certainly don't know what it would be in terms of the fahrenheit scales but uh, pretty cold, I think, in fahrenheit. it's pretty cold yeah it's it's <laughs> it's really cold <laughs> But yeah, no, you're right. Uh, we have uh, similar concepts, uh, at least philosophically, going back to ancient Greek. Um, right. They talked about, oh, I forgot the term now, but they actually had, you know, the old debate between particle and waves was sure. actually resolved <laughs> by a theory in ancient Greece. Uh, I wish I had prepared myself. Uh, I should have brought that uh, onto the table now. It's pretty interesting but um, would you say that free energy zero point energy is conceivable both in a particle paradigm and a wave paradigm and by the way maybe we should even do a brief explanation of that conundrum well the particle let's let's take the particle wave duality first and let's express it in terms of of schrodinger's formulation of of that paradox mm. In, in quantum mechanics, if you, if you have a system that is not under observation, then it has to be mathematically modeled as being in all possible states. So he comes up with his famous cat-in-the-box analogy to explain what he's talking about. And if you have a cat in a box, it can be in one of two states, either alive or dead. And you don't know what state it's in, so you have to model the cat in the box as a wave function moving between the amplitude of life and death, quite literally. Mm. And once you open the box that way and observe what state the cat is actually in, then that wave function collapses and the cat enters into one of the two states. But it's also important to notice the wave function collapse occurs not just in the cat, it also occurs in the observer of the cat. Yeah. So in other words, the wave function is also describing the state of the observer before an observation is made. So that's the wave-particle duality. And you mentioned ancient concepts in this respect, and there's another... Uh, well-known ancient concept that you know was certainly known to the to the Greeks, and that's the idea of the materia prima, the primal matter. Mm. Um, and it's it's very interesting. It's a very interesting concept because if you look at people like Aristotle, 
this he expresses what the prime matter is in distinction to the matter that we observe precisely as that sort of, of wave function collapse because he says that the distinction is is that the materia prima possesses no form. In other words, it doesn't have an observable form that we uh, can observe, you know, of tables or chairs or cats or dogs or whatever. So you even get that idea in, in a kind of clumsy expression way back in, in uh, Greek metaphysics. So, you know, it's been around for a long time. What what has happened, really, if you look at it in a particular way with the development of, of modern theoretical physics, the way I like to look at it is that they have just added equations to the metaphysics. In other words, they're doing <laughs> metaphysics with equations. <laughs> so. More maths, basically. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, exactly. But but um, it's true they have, uh, as is very well known and probably overhyped in New Age, they have uh, determined that you cannot surgically distinguish between an observer and a phenomenon. Right. It is um, like as soon as you have an observer, it influences the results. And the right. Princeton eggs and, and many famous experiments after that has just confirmed and confirmed and confirmed. And this is a huge problem for modern, uh, not science, but scientism adherers yes. because yeah. it crushes, because it uh, implies consciousness is a big deal. But I have to say also about the Schrodinger cat experiment, uh, so it's more clear to people that the reason we don't know if it's alive and dead is uh, it's important to understand that they have rigged the experiment so that it's 50-50. Right, exactly. Otherwise, you know, 99% chance that the cat is alive. Right. But if it's 50-50, that's when you get that interesting. Right. You know, statistically, it shouldn't be... It should be like any any 50-50 odds. So... But I'm not sure if you... Did you, did you really explain the difference here between particle and wave? Well, the difficulty with the particle and wave theory is that physicists themselves have difficulty explaining it. <laughs> you know, so I can I can hardly be expected to improve on their difficulty. But but this goes to the famous double slit experiments and so on and so forth. That uh, if you look at if you look at the formulations of that experiment, when you send an electron through one of two slits. Uh, Scientists discovered in the early development of quantum mechanics that statistically they, they were not able to make any predictions and what results is an interference pattern and, and it's almost as if the electron is going through both slits. Mm. So is it a particle or is it a wave? And again, if you, if you look at the slits themselves, it's a wave, but when you look at the interference pattern that results from the wave, it's a particle. So, mm. yeah. So they're in a bit of a conundrum, and it's like you say, the the problem with quantum mechanics uh, is, and I talked about this to some degree in, in uh, a book I published last year called Microcosm and Medium. Mm. the The problem is that uh, what they've done is that they have put consciousness right back front and center in in science. And, you know, this is a huge blow, like it or not. It's, it's a huge philosophical blow to the kind of 
you know, 18th, 19th century Newtonian, Victorian, materialist, mechanical universe. Mm. Um, it, it kind of flips that whole thing on its head. And I went into that book, um, uh, into the experiments of, of, of Dr. William Tiller, a professor of material science at the University of California, who did a fascinating series of experiments on the ability of intention to actually alter physical reality with no physical contact with the systems that it was, you know, that they were focusing intention. And he, he did experiments on can a focused group intention actually alter the pH acidity scales of uh, compound liquids or can focused group intention alter the gestation periods of fruit flies and so on and so mm. forth. And lo and behold, yeah, it can, you know, <laughs> that, that was a stunning result of his, of his, uh, experiments. So yeah, they're, they're even to the point now with, with Tiller's experiments of showing that this observer effect, the, the effect of an intentional, explicitly spelled out intention mm. can alter physical reality in the macrocosmic world not just at the quantum mechanical level mm. and that's a huge huge thing yeah yeah absolutely um is the term what about the term free energy why do they call it free well i again al i don't know i've never been able to figure that one out uh, there is there is really not any free energy it's coming from somewhere even if you take dirac's approach of of uh zero point energy the you know the dirac sea of of particles and so on and so forth that mm. gives rise to everything so it's coming from somewhere i suspect that the term is really being used in a kind of colloquial way with not much accuracy and the same thing holds for people that talk about over unity and so on and so forth um they're using these terms very loosely and you know over unity or free energy can be expressed as a coefficient of performance that's greater than one in systems that are not closed which is one thing yeah and then it can be used to basically say that there's some sort of violation of the second law of thermodynamics which is quite another thing yeah and there's even a third thing uh, economically yeah it, well yes the problem the problem that Uh, all of this physics raises is that the financial system, and I've tried to point this out in a couple of books, the financial system that we have is basically based upon a closed system physics. In other mm. words, it's based on scarcity, uh, scarcity non-renewable energy sources, and so on. Uh, and if you look at what quantum mechanics is saying, it's saying, number one, that all systems are really open systems. They're all plugged into each other and influence each other and draw energy from or contribute energy to each other. Um, so we don't have a financial system in history until we go way, way back that, that models uh, – media of exchange and, and commerce and finance on that type of system. Mm. So the problem has always been that if you introduce these technologies that I think uh, clearly exist to some degree or fashion in, in the black projects world, if you introduce them into public use, you are 
introducing things that will drastically change the financial system. So how do you transition the, the global financial system to that kind of, of physics? Uh, that, that, I think, is the big problem that the so-called elite have been facing for quite some time. And I don't think they've really come up with any <laughs> with any good or viable ways of doing it. But yeah, you're right. There's a deep connection between economic systems and and physics uh, cosmology views. Absolutely. Mm. And just to complete the terminology account, so over unity, what would that refer to? Well, again, over unity is based on one of two things. You can have overunity that simply expresses a coefficient of performance of a system that is greater than one. Now, some physicists will say that that's not possible, but what they're talking about are systems in closed systems. Um, if you have systems drawing energy from higher dimensional uh, sources or what have you, then then you can easily end up with coefficients of performance greater than one when you consider subsystems within larger systems, mm. which most physicists don't do. But it's possible to do that there. But like I say, on the other hand, when you are talking about a uh, when you're talking about a principle of overunity that is in opposition to the second law of thermodynamics, that's quite a different thing. So again, we're dealing with terms that tend to be used very loosely by people in this alternative research field with not too much accuracy, not too much attention to uh, the actual physics behind what they're claiming. And that to me has always been a problem. So I try and stick with with zero-point energy, because that at least gives us a, a kind of a, a rooting mm. in something that is more or less broadly accepted within within the physics community. Mm. Now, they may, they may not like the way I go about formulating it, or, you know, because I'm not a physicist, you know, I'm a hack from South Dakota. But, <laughs> but admittedly, you have, uh, you have uh, for many, many years, delved deep into, especially uh, physics. Uh, to such a degree that one of your publisher even calls you a physicist on well, he did. Yeah, he did that, you know, and I just, I have to be honest, Al, I lost my temper with him. Okay. Because I said, I'm no such thing. You know, you're creating the impression that I've got a degree in this stuff. I, I don't. I simply read books about it. Mm. <laughs> So he dropped that one like a hot potato, and I've never, <laughs> I've never been referred to him. Yeah, but but you've been interested in it uh, all your life, right? Oh yeah, yeah. You know, I'm interested in plants too, but that doesn't make me an agronomist, <laughs> you know. <so>. <laughs> <laughs> but I suspect your your insights into hard science is deeper than into botanics. I don't know, but uh, <laughs> I, I just suspect. But while we're at this definition, uh, and you rightfully complaining about people being loose with their understanding and the terminology. Let's educate them. So uh, let's just, uh, you, you refer to the second law mm-hmm. of thermodynamics. Just define that too, so people well, know what you mean. The second law of thermodynamics is basically that law that you learned in, in you know, the gymnasium or junior high school in this country that that eventually everything suffers a heat death. Energy drains out of the system and gradually, you know, if you consider the universe as a whole system, gradually everything will 
will lose energy in the form of loss of heat and it will cool down to absolute zero and then we're back at the Dirac Sea. Mm. Uh, you know, we're, we're back where we started uh, with a great big infinitely extended nothing. But, <laughs> but, yeah. but if, you, if you start getting into the second law of thermo, thermodynamics, there have been, been the outliers in science that don't get talked about very much. Uh, one of my favorite is is the Russian astrophysicist by the name of Dr. Nikolay Kozarev. And to kind of sum up his work in a in a dangerously bad way, <laughs> he he looked at the second law of thermodynamics and basically he comes to kind of the conclusion, well, if it's true, then it w- should have already happened. It's kind of one of those xeno-paradox things. So if it's true, then where is it? And why can't we observe it? Well, we can't observe it because essentially what they've done is they've made a, they've made a proposition, a law. So he questions, you know, in his own quirky roundabout way, he even questions that, whether or not it's really a good description of things. And he gets into all of his speculations about time itself being part of the problem. Um, how, do you, how do you describe the energy of systems without time? Well, you can't do it. And you can't have time unless you have systems. So in other words, when you're talking about a... Uh, a second law that says the universe as a whole is under, going to undergo heat death, what you're also saying is it's going to stop. There's going to be no more time. And mm. on and on all this goes. You know? So yep. the interesting thing, like I say, Al, the interesting thing about physics, especially as it's developed in the last century and a half, is it's like I say, they're doing they're doing the old, you know, medieval scholastic theology, but they're just doing it with equations now. The new so, language. Yeah, it's true. Like. It's true, and I'll illustrate that now with the reference to the Greeks. But I'll just have to explain first. Um, you've indirectly touched it, and that's that. In this understanding of waves, there are two concepts. One is that the particles themselves are moving. Mm-hmm. Like um, if there's if it's a thing, if you can imagine it as a material thing, then that thing is moving from A to B. But the right. other concept is that it is um, uh, it's just pushing the thing next to it, who is pushing the thing next to it. I, I, I lack the, the insight into the English terminology here. Maybe you can clear it up, those two. Uh, because these two concepts are, are important to understand the difference. So, Well, yeah, the, the, I, the problem here is that uh, in, the, in the way that electromagnetics has been formulated, and I get into this a great deal in my books, beginning with SS Brotherhood of the Bell, with the idea of vectors and scalars. Mm. Um, if you if you look at the way that most modern physicists are taught the equations of electrodynamics, what they are taught is that the only thing you need to be concerned about is the translation vector. In other words, as you say, a movement from point A to point B. Now, what causes that movement? It could be like a billiard ball yeah. crashing into another billiard ball, or it could be the action of a field on an object and so on and so forth. But the point that they always come back to is that there's a translation vector from point A to point B. But you can imagine, 
And this was this was the brilliant insight of of James Clerk Maxwell and the way he formulated first formulated the equations of electrodynamics was you can envision systems where all the vectors sum to zero. In other words, you've got vectors, but they end up producing no movement from point A to point B. It just sits there at point A. But when all of those vectors are collapsing on, on a point A, you have still present at that point an infolded magnitude of force, just pure force. It's not moving anywhere. It's just present at that point. What what Heaviside did in his reformulation of those equations was he got rid of that enfolded scalar potential and said we only need to look at systems as they manifest themselves on the outside, that is to say in terms of a translation vector. That's transvector. Yeah, it's a translation vector. And mm. And if you look at the way I diagrammed this in SS Brotherhood of the Bell, I put, a, put simple little schematic diagrams in there of, of vector systems that rotate and can be described as zero-sum vector systems. But you can have three or four or five or an infinite number of vectors describing a zero translation. But each system is different in terms of that infolded potential of force that's present at that point. That's the key, that's the key thing here. Mm. So when you, when you look at modern electrodynamics, what they've really done is they've thrown out a huge part of, of – uh, the way electrodynamics actually operates, and I think that was uh, very deliberate because you know if you if you can have uh, that tremendous infolded energy just sitting there at a point, then then what you, you can do is figure out ways to tap into it. And once you start tapping into that, you're talking you're back at Dirac C, you're back at zero point energy and scalar waves and so on and so forth. So. A lot of it went dark, I think, very deliberately yeah. toward the end of the 19th century. Yep. Uh, after World War Two, it's like uh, this whole field has gone black. And, uh, oh, yeah. yeah. I'm a bit worried because they don't even teach uh, history of science uh, appropriately no. anymore. So even new scientists are just these... Uh, they have this micro perspective and, and don't know what the others do and they don't know what their predecessors did. But right. here's a we're at the core of a very important understanding um, and we're still at definitions, but it's very important because the particle adherents, they tend to look at this as a transmission of energy, the vector thing, that it's moving right. from A to B. Right. Whereas the wave people are looking more at transvector, more like, you know, the waves at the ocean. It's, right. it's, uh, the, it's pushing. Yeah, the energy is pushing each other. So, but here's the thing: in ancient Greek, you had uh, people like uh, actually famous people like Thales, Pythagoras, Heraclitus, Democrit, Anaxagoras. <laughs> These people talked about yes, they talked about ether, as you said, but they introduced a very interesting concept about eons, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and they said that ether uh, was uh, an endless. Uh, consisted of endless particles that mm -hmm. were mm -hmm. holding vibration from an infinite movement. And mm -hmm. it, it, they said it doesn't just fill space and matter, but also time. 
Yes. And they solved this because they said that it's both particles and um, waves. They said mm -hmm. that in terms of uh, in space, mm -hmm. they did not uh, transmit or uh, what's it called, like breeding something. They do not breed. But when they make matter, they are subjected to constant movement and right. extreme right. speed. Right. So in the first case, it's a wave movement. And in the other case, it's a spreading mm -hmm. movement. Mm -hmm. So they, they kind of said it's not either or, it's both. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and you make a very good point here about... Uh, Democritus and, and the beginning of this of this whole way of thinking about about the ether, with this emphasis that they had on vibration, and we're coming, you know, by fits and starts, we're kind of coming back mm. in, in the development, yeah, to to in the development of modern physics to that view, to the extent that you know the famous plasma physicist David Bohm realized, you know, what I've been pounding in endless books over and over again, that the first unification in physics was really the uh, harmonic series and the creation of more or less the tempered musical scale, because yeah. the tempered musical scale does not occur naturally. It requires a small mathematical adjustment to, to give us the scales of music that we in the West are used to listening to. Uh, you know, go to India and try and listen to a Hindu raga, which is based on the natural harmonic series, and you'll quickly be bored because, <laughs> you know, it, it doesn't move. It, it just stays in one key, you mm. know, and that's it. Yep. Um, the, the problem that Bohm saw was, okay, if we can do that to that small portion of the harmonic series that is acoustic in nature, we should be able to do it throughout the whole harmonic series. We need to find what that mathematical adjustment is to create a kind of uh, a well-tempered harmonic series throughout the whole thing. And he, he devoted much of his life to trying to calculate the exact nature, the exact unit, uh, quite of a... Oh, is he dead now? Yeah, yeah, he's dead, but he, he tried to calculate this uh, quantum unit of, of vibration, so to speak, yeah. and again, that comes out of Max Planck and his work and so on and so forth. So, it's a very interesting, it's a very interesting field once you get into it, but like I say, they're slowly coming back to this idea of vibration being one of the key things of all physical systems, like it or not. Everything has its own natural resonance, its own fundamental tone, so to speak, if I can draw the musical analogy, and that fundamental tone sets up its own individual harmonic series, uh, be it the planet Earth or you or me or a string in a piano or what have you. Absolutely. Uh, I'll, I'll get back to that, but I just <laughs> want to take a little uh, detour here because I had someone on, uh, Robert Bonomo's name, and we discussed, we, we slightly touched this and we wondered, uh, and I said to him, you are the right person to ask. We couldn't recall Bach and what system he used uh, in his music uh, tuning. Did he... Well, can you tell us what what did he use? Did he use the old school or the new? Who did wh who who Bach, used Johann Sebastian? Oh, Bach. Johann Sebastian Bach. Mm. At the time that Bach composed, and this is true throughout that whole period up to 
and including uh, the early Beethoven, the the scale, the the tempering scale that we are used to listening to now is the fully equally tempered scale. And the reason that that arose was when they started mass production of pianos in the 19th century and, and other keyboard instruments. So everybody just started tuning you know, to the same temperament. But if you go back to the 18th century, uh, J.S. Bach or Haydn or Mozart or Buxtehude or people like this, there were several different tempering systems that would allow you to modulate keys, and Bach himself kind of invented one of these systems, uh, the Bach-Lehmann temperament. And you can go online onto YouTube and listen to pieces of music like Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata played in the just temperament that he probably used, mm. and then listen to it again played on the modern equal temperament, and you'll discover, if you listen carefully, you'll discover slightly different tonal resonances. Mm. And if you listen to those older systems of, of temperament that you know Bach and so on used, they're much richer in a certain sense, because certain keys themselves will sound more out of tune in some of those systems than in the modern equal temperament system, and there, thereby you get the whole doctrine of uh, you know effect in Lerda that certain keys convey certain emotions uh, because of of the way that the things were tuned. So Bach himself would have used the Bach Lehmann temperament, and in fact, if you look at the uh, of Voltemper to Clavier, he, in the original publication of those pieces, he kind of encoded the tempering system that he wanted people to perform those pieces on. So you can go online on YouTube and listen to the C major prelude from the Well-Tempered Clavier in different tempering systems and hear how each system is still a, a system that allows you to modulate between keys, but it will have a different sound in each of those systems. Yeah, and an affect, like you indicated. And an, and, and, and an affect, right. And if anyone thinks that we've uh, walked astray, no, this is actually tied directly to today's subject. Right, right, it is. <laughs> and, and, and I'll get back to that too. But I just want to ask you also, first, what do you use when you play Bach? Well... When I, I I just uh, received my virtual pipe organ about uh, six months ago. Congratulations! Well, thank you. I'm having a blast with it. Um, <laughs> I, I you know it's been thirty plus years since I've played regularly, so my playing isn't exactly up to snuff like it used to be. Will but... you disappear off the radar now? Or <laughs> <laughs> well, I wish I could, you know, <laughs> but. but... But it, the the instrument is a virtual pipe organ, so it actually has four different uh, famous pipe organs, and it has also a German harpsichord. And the sound sampling on each of those instruments is a different temperament. So when I'm playing cool. the English cathedral organ, it's in modern equal temperament, and you can hear it. Uh, when I'm playing the uh, Bavo Kirk in, in uh, Harlem, Holland, I've got the sound sample for that big organ, and that's that's in kind of a uh, Bach Lehmann temperament, and you can hear it. And it's incidentally also tuned to A432, whereas the English instrument is tuned A44. I've got another Dutch instrument, uh, the one at Zwolle, the Schnitger, that's tuned to A492. 
which yeah step. that's that's a very interesting debate about and and some yeah. people talk about the uh, a 440 what 40, is it 444 44 conspiracy no, but it's not if you look at uh, <laughs> but if you look at the natu- uh, nature you'll see that uh, pure a a one stroke a or whatever uh, key a is actually 427 in nature now i'm not talking about music because yes you have to adjust it so that you can actually play right but uh, there are some tuning systems i think who cater to that so that c becomes 256 mm-hmm. 512 etc well, essentially, the people that – let me try and shorten this discussion so that yep. people can understand what we're talking about. There's yep. this idea out there that there was some big conspiracy, and some people even blame the Rockefellers. For, for this, <laughs> oh, I've seen it. You know, and talk about a, a musically illiterate family. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's just nuts. But if you take A444, which is the standard modern tuning, and it's basically based on the modern oboe. That's why you have the oboe sounding the A when orchestras tune up. Mm. Um, if you go back to history and listen to a Baroque oboe, then it's, it's going to be tuned to a lower A. You know, it's, it's this problem. But basically, Al, if you if – you, and I could demonstrate this very easily on Bruno on, on the virtual pipe organ by playing the different instruments and letting people hear what's going on. Mm. If you tune to A432, basically what you're doing is you're stepping the sound that is produced down one half step on A44. So in other words, when I'm playing the A432 instrument, it's going to sound to a modern ear like I'm playing in the key of A flat, even though I'm playing in the key of A mm. on, on the instrument. If you step it up, like the Zwolle instrument in, in Holland, to A492, it steps it up a whole step. So, you know, I can sit down and play the Dorian Toccata in D minor on the Zwolle instrument, and it's going to sound to a modern ear like it's being played in the key of E minor and not D minor. So, you know, it's it's really not doing that much, and, and the people that raise their hackles at A444 are missing the point because if you're stepping things down, you're going to hear that harmonic of, of 444 or something close to it somewhere in in that scale. That's the problem. You know, you're not getting rid of that that harmonic or that overtone when you do that. It's gonna there's gonna be something close to it in this other scale. No, they they try to resolve it with the Pythagorean tuning. Yeah, well that's another that's another that's another can of worms that I got into <laughs> in the in the book Microcosm and Medium because Damn, I need I, that book. I, well, I make the case in there relying on some musicologists, uh, Ernst McLean being one and another fellow in Great Britain by the name of Kennedy, that did a musical theory study of Plato's dialogues. And based yeah, at, I have both those. Do you have both? Uh, they yes, they both said they had cracked the code, the Platon code. Well, they have. Uh, mm. and, and basically what they're showing is that the modern system of tempering was known to the Pythagoreans and the Platonists. Mm. So, in other words, there was the modern system of, of Western music, the, you know, the, the kind of music that we identify with Bach or Mozart or Haydn or whoever, that whole system of tuning was known 
but it was a secret. It was a secret. Yeah. So it, what's A? It doesn't matter what A was. It's not what A is. It's the ability to adjust mathematically the natural harmonic overtones to allow you to modulate between keys during yeah. the course of a piece. That's the key. Without stopping and tuning the instrument on the way. Without re- yeah. stopping to retune the instrument, mm-hmm. right. And they knew that. So, so you can actually use any. Uh, you can use a four twenty seven in that system too. Sure, sure, absolutely. Four ninety two. You can four ninety two, four forty four, four thirty two, four twenty seven. Oh, okay, okay. It's really the mathematical adjustment of the fifth overtone right. from the fundamental. That's the key. It doesn't matter what the fundamental is. Interesting. So all of this fuss about A44 is just a tempest in a teapot. It means absolutely one no. big fat yeah. nothing. <laughs> People who don't understand it, who, who, right. who spew it. But uh, what about um, this so-called natural tone scale? Well, the natural overtone series, if people want to get a demonstration of it, I always tell them to listen to the first lecture of Leonard Bernstein that he did in 1973 called The Unanswered Question. Listen to the first lecture in that series where he demonstrates the harmonic series and why that adjustment was made. Yeah, but I mean I mean the thing called the 12-tone uh, system. Yeah, the, the, yeah. No, the the 12-tone compositional system is something else entirely. Oh, okay. The the 12-note dodecaphonic scale that we have on our keyboard instruments, and keyboard instruments are at the heart of this tuning thing, Mm. because you're dealing with instruments with fixed tones on on their keys, okay? Mm. That's This is why this arose. So... With the rise of keyboard music to become the dominant form of, of musical composition in, in you know the Renaissance and then forward to today, mm. it's it's that that led to this tempering system, because when you're dealing with instruments like guitars or violins or viols or what have you, you're dealing with instruments that can reproduce microtones if they you know if you play them with an ear to do that as as used to be the case when you played string music. So the the problem isn't really what you're setting A at, it's what how you mathematically adjust the fifth overtone in the naturally occurring harmonic series. Yeah. If you take let me give you an example. If you take the note C on a keyboard as being the fundamental note, and for people that want a demonstration of the harmonic series, I have a little webinar using Bruno to demonstrate the harmonic series on organ stops. If you're an organist, you you grow up living with the harmonic series because in hang or- on hang on which which bruno would this be bruno is is my nickname for my virtual pipe organ. Oh. <laughs> okay i thought you were talking about sorry about that <laughs> giordano bruno yeah well no, no, I'm, not talking about him, no. <laughs> no, okay. I'm not that n- nerdy into music here so could you clear that up go on well, if if you go online, if your if your listeners are members of my website in my members area, I have a demonstration of the harmonic series on on the pipe organ, because organ stops are based on the harmonic series. You know, all those numbers that you see on organ stops are based on the harmonic series. Hmm. So you grow up with an instrument where you literally have to learn about the harmonic series. You know, from the get go. But in a way that in a way that you don't have on any other keyboard instrument other than perhaps a harpsichord, um, pianos no. But if you sit at a piano and and take the note C as the fundamental that sets up the harmonic series, 
between the note A and B flat. That's the fifth overtone from the fundamental. It's a note, in other words, that's not even present on the keyboard. It's lying in the crack between A natural and B flat. Hmm. So there's your mathematical adjustment. They had to adjust that interval up or down a, hat, a, little, a, a quarter step, essentially. And in doing so, they created the ability, the, the 12-note scale, on the chromatic scale on the keyboard, that allows you to modulate between keys. And, and the solution was a 12th root of, of the number 2, if I remember the interval correctly. And they pressed that, that naturally occurring note down to the note A, okay? Mm. So that's that's how we got the scales that we're accustomed to listening to for the past 500 or so years in in the West, uh, and you can't imagine including Bach, including Bach, including mm. the Beatles, mm. including Ario Speedwagon, Duke Ellington, you know everybody, <laughs> everybody is using that system. Because mm. you're so right that the pitch uh, of uh, our tone has an effect and uh, there's been deep research into this and yes. it's even used in we know it's been used traditionally like tibetans have these singing bowls and shamans and everything so it can be right. used for healing but military of course very early understood geez it's not just that, you know, the classical is the opera singer who smashes glass with their mm-hmm. um, with the right pitch, but it's also that you can use it destructively. So, yes. for example, they, if, if they wanted resources, they put up audio generators that right. made, uh, if a tribe lived there, they wanted to drive them off the land, so they made people sick with, uh, and then they went in and seized the land. And it's been used in torture, it's been used in... in right. uh, warfare but in positive it can be used for for healing and have you ever tried to use the natural frequencies the natural hertz i'm, I'm talking here from 256 to 512 uh, no, from c to no, c no i that's not to say that i'm not aware of it um in microcosm and medium, I discuss in a whole chapter, uh, which really doesn't do the the doctrine much good, other than to give it an overview. The whole Baroque era doctrine of of affect, uh, affectenlehre, was mm. what it was called in in German. That music was understood to be something that could summon or conjure universal human passion and please note the way way i put it universal human passion rather than individual subjective emotion there is a difference Mm. and the the baroque composers particularly in germany you know bach buxtehude you know people like this were very well aware of the difference in keys the effects of tones, the effects of certain rhetorical procedures that were adapted to music to create a an emotional response that was more or less universal in the audience. And if you doubt that such a thing can be done, there is a modern equivalent to that, and that's film music. Mm. If you listen to the what goes on in the music to films, you'll always discover certain chords are used by those composers to produce certain effects. Mm-hmm. It's very, very typical. What they're missing is the is the grounding of of that doctrine. It's very, 
very seldom taught anymore in uh, in in music theory. But if you're an organist, you know, if you want to play Bach or Buxtehude or somebody like that, you you have to know the doctrine of affect and what they were attempting to accomplish in their music, and that's a very involved thing. And many. Uh, many organists now, I would say, I would say a good ninety percent of them don't know of that doctrine and how it should affect their playing. Mm. Uh, you know, I was taught by a German in South Dakota when I was taking organ lessons, and one of the things he would always have me do when I was starting to learn a fugue, for example, was to tell him whether the fugue subject was masculine, feminine, or androgynous, and why. Mm-hmm. And why, mm-hmm. you know, and there are reasons for it once you get into the way that these people thought about their craft back then. Absolutely. And, and this also has direct parallel to uh, what we're talking about. But I'll, I'll tie it in that in two. I just want to continue a little more on this track. We actually mm-hmm. had an, or, another organist on, uh, Peter Amundsen. He's into mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. decoding bacon and stuff. And because, mm-hmm. of, because he understands codes, actually, the way he uh, went into what's called um oh, what's it called uh, it's a code system uh, i forgot mm-hmm. the term but it because of his training in bach and stuff that he mm-hmm. naturally could right. start seeing other kinds of codes right so if you have the right education uh, you can and that's a wonderful thing with vibration if you are into electronics if you're into mm-hmm. music it doesn't matter you can automatically translate your insights into other right. areas because right. it's the same principles we're dealing with right. in nature. But I would just want to say uh, there's probably some musicians out there who we pique their interest. So I just want to give them the frequencies if they ever want to experiment with the natural tone system. And then you have to tune uh, C is 256, then mm-hmm. D 288, E 320, F 341. G384, mm-hmm. A427, B480, and finally C512 hertz or mm-hmm. vibration per second. So go go ahead, people. You can experiment with that now and see what kind of you, how, how people will react to that. And it's true mm-hmm. what you say. In the ancient Egypt, they knew this. They had to, uh, they used the ch- tones in in their spiritual uh, practice the greeks inherited that if you were going to be like a mystery priest you had to master exactly the pure tones if you if you were tone deaf or you didn't have a voice you couldn't become a right. uh, initiate priest pythagoras there's famous stories about how he experimented with uh, strings and saw how mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, drunk people were influenced, passionate youth. Mm-hmm. One guy, he was so jealous, he wanted to kill um, someone uh, who his uh, girl had gone with. And then uh, Pythagoras started to play and he, he became mellow. So, yeah, we, we know this from ancient times. Mm-hmm. But here's a perfect way for you to tie this back to what we're talking about, because I want you to define... Mm-hmm. The unified field, which this little gem of your book, uh, Secrets of the Unified Field, is referring to. And I believe also you once said that probably, uh, I think it was Pythagoras who, who introduced the first crack at the unified field. 
yes. Well, as I said, the the first unification in physics was precisely this mathematical adjustment that led to the tempered scale that we take for granted in Western music, and it was the Pythagoreans that I think clearly cracked that code. And you can definitely see that the code was cracked in Plato. Uh, and I get into that whole thing in, in microcosm and medium. But, but what does it mean, unified field? What are they talking well, about? Well, in terms of modern physics, there are four forces in physics that are they think are the fundamental forces. Gravitation, electromagnetism, and then the strong and weak nuclear forces. All right? Yeah. Now, in in the evolution of unified field theory, if you go back to the interwar period in Germany particularly, you had a lot of scientists, including Einstein and some other people, mathematician by the name, very famous guy by the name of Theodor Kaluza, K-A-L-U-Z-A, uh, that were working on these unified field theories. And what they were trying to do was a kind of a limited unified field theory in trying to unite in one set of equations the equations of electromagnetism and gravitation. And the first real unified field that was able to do that was Theodor Kaluza's uh, unified field theory, which was a five-dimensional theory. In other words, there were five spatial dimensions that allowed him mathematically to unify the equations of, of gravitation and, and electromagnetism. Uh, Einstein himself experimented with a number of different approaches to to that whole concept as well, and he was certainly influenced by by Theodor Kaluza's work. Mm -hmm. And I start talking about that in, in Secrets of the Unified Field, because there's an interesting character that comes along <laughs> in in that book, and he reappears uh, in my most recent book, uh, McCarthy, Monmouth, and the Deep State, and his name is Gabriel Krohn. Krohn was a Jewish-Hungarian electrical engineer, and he published a paper in 1934 that demonstrated that rotating electrical systems, uh, networked electrical systems, could be described by using these higher dimensional theories. And in, in this paper, he's arguing that it is only by application of those theories to electrical circuits that you can explain electrical transients and anomalies that electrical engineers encountered. Now, that sounds terribly academic, but let me tell you what it really means. Mm -hmm. What he's just said is, number one, every electrical circuit, no matter how simple, you know, your refrigerator or your microwave, or no matter how complex, think of the Hadron Collider at CERN, mm. no matter what the electrical circuit is, every electrical circuit is a higher dimensional machine. In other words, it is something that can only be mathematically modeled by higher dimensional mathematics. And as such, the circuit itself becomes a higher dimensional machine. It taps into, it's a gate, it's a, it's a transducer of higher dimensions. That's number one. Number two, in doing that, what he's also said is all of this unified field theory speculation that's been going on in Europe in the 1920s and 1930s can be brought down right to the laboratory bench and engineered. 
And he goes so far as to say, once you understand the role of the tensor calculus, what you can do is you can use that calculus to design any sort of electrical machine that you want to. Let me repeat that. Any sort of electrical machine that you want to. And he won a prize for this paper. It was first published in this country in 1934. It was published in Europe. Uh, and he won a prize at the University of Liège in Belgium for this paper. And what's very interesting is right across the border <laughs> in Nazi Germany, publications on unified field theory all of a sudden just stop. Wow. So in other words – they saw the they saw the implication of what he was saying, and of course in this country, you know, Crone goes to work for General Electric, and I strongly suspect that because of what Crone is writing in terms of his uh, theoretical speculations on on electricity. And he published a number of very, very wild, interesting books, and I talk about them in Secrets of the Unified Field, and then again in, in the last book I published, Monmouth, uh, McCarthy, Monmouth, and the Deep State. If you look at what Crone did, he is basically giving engineers the mathematical tools so that if they are given a strange technology – and it's a strange, unknown electrical technology, they can actually break it down mathematically into the subsystems and analyze it and reverse engineer it. So in other words, Gabriel Crone, who definitely worked on a number of black projects in this country, would have been the perfect fellow to have involved in things like looking at UFO technology, in things like the Philadelphia experiment, and so on and so forth. Because what he's done in his work is he's shown people how to apply how to apply tensor calculus, quite literally, to the problem of engineering any sort of electrical system that you want to. Mm. Uh, would you say he's the first published scientist who, uh, yeah, cracked that? Yeah, I, he's, he, yes, he is. He's the first published scientist, really, that's saying all of this unified field theory speculation can be brought down to the laboratory bench, and it has a practical application. Don't you think Tesla was onto that? I think Tesla was onto aspects of it. The difference between Tesla and Crone is if you look at Tesla and his patents, it's very clear that Tesla's not giving you all of his mathematics. Yeah, exactly. If you look at Crone, it's very clear that he's giving you he's giving you the key to it all. Um, he's he's giving you the analytical and synthetic tool that you need to examine. Yeah, yeah, Tesla didn't publish it, but don't you think he was retaining it deliberately? Because he oh, yeah, realized... I, I yeah, I definitely think his experience with uh, with Morgan and all of that kind of kind of put him on guard. And you can you can read those patents and just tell that the equations that he does put in there are kind of um, how to put it. They're like the last couple of steps in a mathematical argument of several steps. Because Tesla is known for a, a interesting quote. He says, "If uh, I'm paraphrasing, I'm not even sure I recall it correctly, but he says something in the manner of, if you want to understand the universe, think in terms of vibration. 
and frequency. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing is, vibration, we talked about that. You know, we use often the musical reference to understand vibration, but what people maybe don't get is that it's not just that what we hear can be divided into the same principles and what we see mm-hmm. can yes. be divided in. Right. Because everybody knows that like color and, and, and sound is related. Right. And by the way, all the fifth senses, they just... For the longest time, they argued, no, no, smell, that's actually particles. But now we know perfume industry has actually been a very good pioneer in the avant-garde here. They know that even smell can be divided into uh, these 12 principles and also tactile and taste. Now, that means that everything and anything we can perceive in existence is following these principles of 12. And it's not just that, but it's also that they are all present in the same scale. Mm -hmm. In other words, if you raise the vibrations, there was this scientist back in the late 1800s, I forgot his name, but he had this famous experiment where he took this ball, um, I think it was iron, and he vibrated it. Keely. Keely, yeah. Yeah. And you could see, you could observe how it went mm-hmm. in the low vibration is and then it goes silent, right? But it still, as the vibration or the movement increases, the effects start going into color, right? It starts with red and then it goes all the way up. And theoretically, it would become invisible, Mm-hmm. We're given enough power, given enough um, force. Mm-hmm. So this means that it's not that we have five disparate windows to the world and they all follow the same principle. No, it's that everything is actually tied in together. Maybe maybe the cosmic scale, if we should call it that, is well, eternal. Uh, yeah, yeah, let's put it this way. The harmonic series, what you're, what you're getting at is that the harmonic series is universal. Mm. In other words, the acoustic series that we hear in music or a speech and so on and so forth, that is a small subset of the whole exactly. harmonic series, which includes vibrations that are in the spectrum of light, yeah. uh, infrared, microwaves, radio, and then at the other end of the spectrum, uh, blues, purples, then into X-rays, gamma rays, and so on. Things that we cannot see. Cosmic rays, yeah. But things that definitely have their own frequency. And what yeah. the senses are, if you look at them from that point of view, is that the five senses are just sense organs that look at different subsets of that whole harmonic series. Exactly. And, and, and imagine how, uh, th- that means that we are blind, not just in terms of visual, but in all ways of orientating ourselves. We are blind to most mm-hmm. of what's in existence because those small windows we have on these five senses can only perceive, like you call it, subsets or, or limited uh, ranges of this universal mm-hmm. vibration field. And mm-hmm. then... Right. We can understand that enter, for example, so-called UFOs. Mm -hmm. Uh, Very common in UFO observation is that when the phenomenon is 
disappearing, when it's going away, very often you see it start vibrating and then mm -hmm. it just mm -hmm. boom, goes invisible. And people mm -hmm. imagine, oh, yeah, it's, it's incredible speed it left. No, it's just that it's vibrating so high mm -hmm. that we cannot see it anymore. And enter mm -hmm. the night vision Googles that are so popular, right. you know. Right. And they are able to see that lots of stuff is going on in the spectre that we can't directly perceive and not only that i've seen uh, they have started to science have really moved on because they've started to find phenomenons i wish i had a reference open but they're talking about that the life forms mm -hmm. i don't know if you've seen this but it's it, pretty new there are life forms existing in specters that we cannot perceive directly like mm -hmm. i'm not talking about you know creatures like humans but yeah. primitive life forms yeah. <laughs> and it's conceivable as, as soon as we understand that the entire existence is an ocean of vibrations and we can just mm -hmm. perceive some of it then it's fully conceivable that mm -hmm. anything can be going on in those specters that mm -hmm. we cannot directly we can interact with someone like x-ray machines we wouldn't have that if this wasn't a reality right right so then i have to ask you uh, to move a little on here um when we talk about harvesting this energy or countering parts of the forces in nature like uh, gravity and stuff mm -hmm. then i think we should uh, introduce you you mentioned him already korserev Mm -hmm. uh, what's the big deal about, like Hoagland has talked about this forever, torsion? Mm -hmm. Well, torsion is a concept, just to give you the, the analog that I use in Secrets of the Unified Field to explain to people what torsion is, what it does, is take an empty soda can and imagine that that empty soda can represents the lattice work of local space-time, and then take each end of the soda can in your hands and twist it, wring it out like a dish rag, okay? Mm -hmm. What torsion does is it does that to the lattice work of space-time. It twists and bends it, all right? Now, in, in mathematical physics, there's two versions of the torsion tensor. The first version of the torsion tensor is the Einstein-Cartan torsion tensor. And the effect of that twisting on space-time is rather negligible. It's there, but it's rather negligible. So physicists have tended to ignore it. There is another version of the torsion tensor called the Ricci tensor, which deals with those types of rotating systems within rotating systems within rotating systems and so on. Mm. Hoagland calls it dynamic torsion. Mm. In other words, it's systems of rotation within systems of rotation and so on. And the effect of that tensor is not nearly as negligible. So torsion, if you look at what that whole area of physics, which tends to be, again, kind of a fringe... Um, area where some physicists have experimented with, Nikolai Kozarev being, you know, right at the top of the list, is that basically what they're saying is we do not encounter any physical system that does not involve at some level rotation. 
In other words, forget about this nice rectilinear Cartesian coordinate (laughs) system because nothing in nature really works that way, (laughs) okay? Mm. Everything in nature really is is in a system of rotation at some level. And usually those systems of rotation are dynamic torsion systems because they're systems of rotation within systems of rotation and so on. Think of the planets in Mm. the solar system. Each planet is revolving on its axis. Each planet is orbiting around the sun. And the sun, in its turn, is orbiting around the center of the galaxy. So that, you know, this is a classic system of dynamic torsion. Couldn't you say the sound for microcosmos? Sure, yeah, absolutely. Atoms, electrons. Sure, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. So that's a whole area of of experimentation that that Kozarev got into because he was trying to determine if these torsion effects were in part temporally based, and he discovered that they were. And as a result of those experiments, and let's remember how he got into this. This is a crucial point. Kozarev was an astrophysicist, and he looked at the chained-up hydrogen bomb model of the sun, and he concluded that the sun was putting out way too much energy for just the chained-up hydrogen bomb model of the sun to be true. So where is this other energy coming from? And he concluded that it was coming from the fact that the sun is a system in rotation, and it's a system of dynamic rotation because the different layers of the sun are rotating at different speeds, okay? Mm. So you've got all of this, all of this uh, to be simplistic about it, you've got all of this angular momentum that's there, that's contributing in some form or fashion that we don't quite understand to the energy that it's producing. So then when he makes this conclusion, it's an interesting thing, and I get into this in in the Philosopher's Stone, as you know. Um, Kozarev was denounced in Pravda in the late 1950s for being a kook, (laughs) okay? But what what happened in reality was that the Soviet government had denounced him because they put him to work in super-secret research into this stuff. And I suspect that the reason that they did, Al, is that they discovered the same thing that we discovered when they started lighting off their hydrogen bombs. They were getting anomalous returns on yield, uh, think of the big Tsar Bomba that they lit off. Uh, I'm thinking of Ronald Richter. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, precisely. <laughs> Ronald Richter, the same, the same guy. Uh, pardon me, the same concept being talked about by a different guy doing rotation experiments with plasmas. Well, the sun is a plasma, and it's in rotation. And he was also portrayed as a kook. And he was also portrayed yeah. as a kook. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So Kozarev, um, I suspect, was put on this work because the Soviets were discovering that they're getting anomalous returns on their hydrogen bomb detonations the same way we were. And they had to figure out, well, why is this happening? And I suspect that they came to the conclusion, and I've always maintained this, uh, Richard Hoagland has maintained this, that they realized that the yield would vary slightly depending on what time you set it off, meaning what configuration of planets 
is in existence at that time. And depending on where on the planet Earth you set it off, because, of course, if you're detonating bombs up in the Arctic Circle as opposed to the United States detonating bombs in, in the equator of the Pacific, you're getting a different angular momentum from the spin of the Earth. And therefore, if they're contributing anything to the reaction, that the yield is going to vary slightly according to the time and place that you set them off. So in other words, Kozarev goes on to formulate that time itself, going back to your comment about the ancient Greeks, that time itself is part of the considerations of energy, that time is a form of energy. Mm. Okay, That's basically what he's saying. And I think he's absolutely right. And I think that if you look at it that way, and I realize, Al, and I hope that everybody understands that this is speculation, but at least it's argued speculation. But I suspect that this is the reason why recent additions to the nuclear club, you know, the British come along and then the French and then the Chinese and then the Indians and the Pakis and so on, that they keep testing their bombs because – they when they when they detonate their bombs they discover that their yield calculations are slightly off from what actually happens mm. and they keep testing to try and learn what those laws of harmonics there we are again mm-hmm. are mm. and that's the reason they do this and if that's the case it would explain a great deal of of why the nuclear club when it expands you know you have these people setting off their bombs well you don't need to keep setting off your bombs because you know they work yeah. you know? So. that's what that was annoying the entire environmental movement you know yeah, exactly. protesting they don't get it what, what they the? don't get it you know yeah. you know they, they, underwater yeah. under earth in yeah. space and interesting, they use different mediums here, right? Because that yeah. uh, is very essential to get uh, different kinds of data to solve right. this problem. Yeah, think of the different mediums that they're testing the bombs in as being the the equivalent of, you know, well, we're going to play this piece of music with oboes mm. and, and woodwinds, or we're going to play that piece of music with strings and brass and so on and so forth. Exactly. Exactly. Regarding time, I, I usually say that's space in movement. Without yeah. movement, no time. Right. Uh, it will freeze. Uh, so, so you cannot uh, divide surgically time and space. Right. Right. It is right. two sides of the same coin. Now, we've touched a lot here. I wonder if we should take one more definition. By the way, what's the meaning of torsion? Why, why did they call it torsion? That's a good question, and I don't know the answer to that, Al. That's a very good question. Um, But you have a chapter called The Meaning of Torsion. (laughs) (laughs) Well, torsion, the meaning of torsion to the physicist is precisely this twisting effect on the lattice work of space-time. But I suspect that torsion is coming out of a purely mechanical thing, you know, torque. Oh, okay. uh, And the equations of of torque. And and they simply took that and extended it to uh, an application to the actual physical medium itself. And and once you do, you, you've got torsion. You've got the two torsion tensors and so on. Mm. Okay. Um, we should define a little, when it comes to this other book, Philosopher's Stone, I think we should go, get a little into the uh, background of understanding the prima materia mm-hmm. and, you know, what's up with 
this um, talk about uh, Philosopher's Stone and, and how is this related to everything? Well, the Philosopher's Stone, if you look at alchemical texts, and I looked at quite a few in that book. I didn't use them all when I wrote the book, but I looked at quite a few. And over and over again, I don't know, I know that you're familiar with alchemical texts as well, but um, over and over I had the impression, Al, that I was reading works that were basically talking not only about metaphysics, but they were talking about this Dirac Sea. They were talking about this ether. They were talking about this materia prima, the prime matter. Mm. Because the quest for the philosopher's stone, in that sense, if you read certain alchemical texts, is really the quest to get to the underlying matter, so to speak, behind all matter. And they realized to their credit, I think, that all matter is really a series of transformations mm. of something underlying it, uh, be it, you know, Dirac's Energy C or in modern, in modern uh, parlance, the information field. You know, mm. if you think of music, think of Bach. What is he constantly doing? Well, he's constantly, constantly permuting very basic units of musical information, turning them upside down, running them backwards to forwards, you know, so on and so forth, mm. and extending the time value of notes or shortening them. So, in other words, he's performing permutations on information. So, it's not it's not without reason that the Baroque composers, the Baroque music theoreticians, borrowed in their terminology, in their music theory treatises, terms directly from alchemy. Mm. This is a key key component of understanding what they were up to tying tones to planets for example tying tones to planets tying just the idea of musical permutations of ideas to a kind of yeah. alchemical process yeah. so if you look at prime matter from that standpoint this is really what the alchemists are about they're trying to understand the processes of the transformation and transmutation of matter and to do that, they come up with this idea, they go back to Aristotle and some of the early Greek philosophers of this idea of the materia prima, the matter that underlies all other matter. And once you understand that, then alchemy itself, <coughs> pardon me, alchemy itself really becomes a kind of quest for exotic matter. It's a matter that they know must exist that underlies the matter that we see, and they're trying to discover, well, how do we get to it? How do we reverse engineer it? And once you understand that, then it stands to reason that, okay, if that's possible, then we can transmute base metals into gold, you know, and mm. so on and so forth. And let's not forget the esoteric side of alchemy, that we can transmute the base metal of, you know, a, a vicious soul – into the virtuous metal of a virtuous soul. Mm. And it's important also to add that the underlying understanding here is that everything in existence are striving towards its own perfection. Right, exactly. So that in this, con if you're talking minerals, then gold is the perfection of 
minerals. And you will have the same equivalent in terms of, for example, soul or consciousness or whatever. So everything can be raised. So the difference between transformation and transmutation here is that transformation just means that things are changing in the outer shells, in the forms. Whereas in transmutation, it's not just changing, but it's changing in a specific evolutionary direction. Right, exactly. You've hit the nail on the head there because the other thing that you get from reading these alchemical texts is the the underlying cosmology behind it all is very strongly teleological. In other words, if Aristotle were, were to express it in his terms, he would say that alchemy is concerned with final causes. Mm. And this this is one of the chief differences between and it's a philosophical difference. It's one of the chief differences between alchemy and modern chemistry. Because alchemy is saying precisely what you've said. Everything is tending towards an evolution to its own perfection of form. And, you know, chemistry is just simply concerned with transformations and so on. So, yeah, that's a key crucial difference. But Yeah, and uh, alchemists had great respect. They said, do not mix kingdoms. Right. Like, uh, and kingdoms could be like animal and, and human, but... What do modern science? They have no spiritual guidelines, right? So no, if they can not. put a human head on a dog body, they will do it. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, and that you know we're as in the days of Noah, but <laughs> yeah. yeah. And now they do the same. Did you see? Oh my God! I have to send you that. But you may, you know, you have people sending you stuff. Did you see that they have now made a hybrid of uh, a life form and mechanical? Yeah. Yeah, I have. Yeah. In the white world. Yeah, I have. And that, to me, is a kind of twisted alchemy. Um, yep. Dr. DeHart and I talked about that in our book, um, Transhumanism. Because if you, look at, if you look at that kind of broad cosmological underlay behind alchemy, you have, you have four different atoms, quite literally. You've got, you've got the androgynous atom, then you've got... Uh, mineral atom, vegetable atom, and then at the lowest rung, you've got animal atom. And what it appeared to us that a lot of these transhumanists are really talking about is just an alchemical agenda in disguise. They're trying to reverse engineer back up that ladder using all of these mix, you know, mixtures of kingdoms uh, to ascend back up that ladder. But you can't get rid of that that teleological component even in the modern expressions of, of transhumanism. Mm, this is a kind of Satanism, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It really is. It's a, it's a kind of, um, you know, to put it in theological terms, it's a kind of Pelagianism. It's the idea mm. that you can you can perfect mankind without the practice of virtue, without uh, the presence of transcendent divine grace, and so on and so forth. In, instead of coming from within, they're forcing right, exactly. it from without. Right. Yeah, exactly. Mechanical it's, instead of organic or natural. Right, yeah. Mm. right. Yeah, exactly. And I talk about, you know, just just to put this in a, in a different context, I talk about this idea of teleology again in, in microcosm and medium because, interestingly enough, uh, modern cosmological physics, particularly with its development of, of the anthropic principle, is getting back to this idea of teleology in, in its cosmological formulation. So it's, we're, we're coming back full circle once again, you know, because the, 
the strictly materialist version of things that we were operating under, you know, with Newton and Descartes and the Victorian era, that's breaking down. And it's breaking down at breakneck speed, I might add, um, <laughs> <Yeah>. if, <laughs> if, you, if you really dig into it. Yeah. So if we have this idea then that it is possible to mm -hmm. uh, harvest energy from in, instead of using what's around us, mm -hmm. we're harvesting energy from a kind of invisible source. You know, it's dismissed precisely because of the flaws and limitations of thermodynamics. They they think in mm -hmm. uh, closed system, as you call it. So they say, no, right. no, no, you cannot get anything. Uh, that isn't already here. But I don't get why they're still arguing that when they at the same time admit that there is maybe such a concept, they take it seriously at least, as multiverse. Because right. if they admit that there are several dimensions, mm -hmm. and they fully admit that, you know, the whole concept of black holes, mm -hmm. which are entrances mm -hmm. either into other universes or other dimensions, Mm -hmm. And then you have the hyperspace theory and, and even that quasars are white holes. It's mm -hmm. spewing mm -hmm. out energy, black holes is sucking in. Mm -hmm. Already there, they have an explanation for how zero-point free energy could work, don't they? That sure, could be just sure. harvesting energy from another layer of existence. Sure, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I I don't know why there is such a reaction other than to say al that my suspicion is twofold number one you've got a group that just are so panicked about the idea of a metaphysical reality being real you know the whole consciousness mind energy that whole invisible higher dimensional realm as being real that they just don't want to go there it's just this visceral clinging for dear life to to the to the Victorian machine paradigm but that paradigm is as you say it's breaking down rapidly the ancient view was that the universe was a not a complex machine but a complex organism mm. which you know we're being forced back to by fits and starts and you know quantum mechanics is to blame in a certain sense because it opened up that whole door and the other part of me suspects that some of them have been aware of this all along and they want to keep it secret from the rest of us because if the secret gets out, then there's going to be a revolution in terms of human thought, human organization, our institutions of government, of finance, you know, the whole nine yards. Yeah. So they just don't want to deal with the implications of it because it's too overwhelming and they want to keep it and monopolize it for their own power and for their own purposes. This is the other part of the equation. So I think those two things are at work here. Exactly. You have an alignment between the ideological right. uh, concern and the material power right. concern. Right. And part of the problem, let's not try and paint all of these scientists with, with a black brush. Part of the problem is that a pure a pure idealistic system you know say hegel for example uh, a pure ideologic ideological system cannot deal in its own commitments with the reality of the physical so the what the problem is is we have not figured out the exact laws of the feedback loops between the the 
so to speak, the metaphysical and the physical. And there are such laws. You know, Tiller, I mentioned him earlier, mm-hmm. he's begun experimenting, trying to find out exactly what those laws are. So, yeah, I think, I think we're on the cusp of a new systems approach to physics that really began, if you know the literature, Ilya Prigogine and so on back in the early 60s, it started this whole non, non-equilibrium thermodynamics uh, interest in chemistry and so on and dealing with systems. And it's a new area, uh, Bertalanffy and biology and people like this, that have been trying to look at systems and the feedback loops and the laws and kinetics that describe their interactions. And that's a whole new area of physics. You know, it's, it's not that old. And it's, it's a different way of looking at things than we're accustomed to because, you know, the development of, of physics or, for that matter, biology – has been to to analyze systems and break them down into distinct components. Mm. And this is why Gabriel Crone is so important, because his work was twofold. He, not, he wanted his engineers to take that tensor calculus and break down complex systems into simpler systems, analyze the simpler components, but then he also wanted them to be able to synthesize simple systems into complex systems. So, you know, he, he was looking at both sides of, of this enterprise, and with the emphasis now on systems, we're talking about synthesis. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be a new thing that we're going to have to become accustomed to in the way that we approach things. Uh, we're going to have to start thinking very analogically, once again, which the ancients were very good at, and we're not so good at. Yeah. No, that's true. I wonder... We uh, we should t- before we we take a break. I think mm-hmm. we should go to a very dark place that okay. is implied by some of the stuff we're talking about. But it, it it should really be its own show. But on the other hand, I don't know if we should cover it too much because it, mm-hmm. the implications of it. But you know, there is a parallel, a direct implication of what we're talking about: uh, the open system and the closed system. Mm-hmm. And we touched uh, uh, briefly also on it when we had this more philosophical debate about the um, what you call the um, uh, you, you call it the, oh, the, the show was called the hidden patterns of reality mm-hmm. you, you talk about this uh, philosophical concept of uh, mm-hmm. oh, well, there's this invisible pattern in uh, oh the topological in, metaphor topological the, metaphor you call it right of the medium yes. yeah mm-hmm. so here's the thing sacrifice mm-hmm. yes is directly connected to the idea of scarcity. And there is a philosophical predecessor here because they imagine that we have to give back to, lack of a better word, God. Right, right, right. Or energy. You want to touch that a little because that's directly implied here. Yes, it it is very directly tied. Um, let's, Let's begin with the doctrine of the atonement as it was formulated by Anselm of Canterbury in the Middle Ages, uh, which most people in in the West think is the dogma of Christianity concerning the sacrifice of Christ. It is not, because if you look at what Anselm does, he says, in effect, and and he even spells this out right in the first paragraph of, of his treatise where he outlines this doctrine. What he says, in effect, is that when man fell and sinned, 
it created an infinite debt uh, and created an infinite wrath in God that mankind was obligated to pay, but because that debt and wrath was infinite, mankind being finite... Uh-oh, my dog is, is barking at something. Shiloh! No, no, no. No. Sorry about that. No problem. Um, the, this infinite debt could not be repaid by man because man is finite. Hmm. So God, God the Son, had to become man in order to pay that infinite debt to satisfy the infinite wrath and so on of God. So look at to the what, banker. The banker took over the debt. Yeah, bingo. Precisely. <laughs> precisely. What just happened is you've made God an accountant, okay, and you've made Christ an entry in a ledger book, okay. <laughs> okay. Wonderful. Man. And you know, and what you've really done is you've set up a a principle of debt and sacrifice that are really. Uh, at the top of the system, not even God is at the top of it. It's this principle of debt and sacrifice. So if you look at the topological metaphor, what I've what I've said over and over again is you can look at that metaphor in one of two ways, because you've got a primary differentiation of that initial nothing, okay? And that primary differentiation can be looked at, that initial nothing can be looked at as a unity which is then fractured, and therefore, you've got a closed system. So you've got the the first the first derivatives of that differentiation. You've got thirds, all right. Mm. But you can also look at it as an open system, which is the way I think it is conceived or construed by you know the Platonists, the Neoplatonists. Uh, there are certain texts in the Bhagavad Gita that suggest this as well, and so on and so forth, where the system is viewed as an open system, and rather than fracturing a primal unity, what it does is that primal unity multiplies itself. So you've got not one and then thirds, but you've got one and then three, and then you differentiate again, and you've got more and more things added to it. So you've got a mm. system of fecundity that keeps growing rather than you know dividing itself into ever smaller slices of the pie. Mm. So the metaphor is very powerful in that sense. And once you've looked at it that way, once you once you see that this is not a, a closed system, then there's no need for this idea of sacrifice. Mm. And it's very interesting if you look at you know the development of this doctrine in in church theology you will not find anselm's doctrine in the greek fathers because they point out well you know it's got not god demanding the sacrifice and therefore who's who are we sacrificing to well we don't know <laughs> mm. so but this is this is bigger than christianity uh oh it's, it's in the bhagavad gita yeah it's in the it's in the vedic literature south america what's it called Incas. south america yeah the incas and so on yep. and in mesoamerica you've got the same thing so it's it's this the way I put it in Babylon's Banksters is it's the difference between the corn god and the blood god. <laughs> mm -hmm. But this can be this can be applied in contemporary terms uh, because oh, yeah. because maybe I'm dumbing it down now. But it seems to me that if you insist on a materialist paradigm, right. you are clinging to the scarcity. You are dividing basically what you're really dividing here is consciousness from right. matter. 
But right. if you admit that we talked about what did you call it the universal scale, right. universal harmony, right. if you admit that there's a universal in a truly universe, cosmic, mm-hmm. all levels, all dimensions, it's all right. coherent. Right. Then you cannot surgically divide, for example, consciousness right. and matter or life force for that matter. But well, there, if they want to put us in a materialist prison, then they have to uh, divide it and they have to keep us blind to life right. and consciousness. And then it makes sense that we sacrifice some part of this to get an effect Right. On another level that we cannot perceive, we mere mortals who are not in on this uh, diabolic thinking. Yeah, because, the, I mean, Iraq war, Syria, whatever. Any thoughts? Well, I, let's, look at, let's look at that whole paradigm of, of scarcity and, and the fractionization of, of the metaphor of, of, of viewing it as a system of fractions. Let's look at history. If you take just the idea of petroleum, Okay, just mm-hmm. the idea of petroleum. Mm-hmm. When does it become a resource? Well, it becomes a resource when the imagination and creativity of mankind have a need for it. Mm. Prior to that, it's just black muck in the desert that you know nobody knows what to deal with. But hey, look, we can put it in lamps and burn it. You know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, so in other words, it's the consciousness and mind and creativity of human beings that have transformed this thing into a resource Mm. and as a result of this that whole static conception disappeared and this is the problem with these closed systems they view resources themselves as closed we don't know what the imagination what the consciousness Mm. what the mind is going to conceive next that will make resources out of things that we currently take for granted we simply don't know exactly and they're not interested in it because they're tied to it for practical, for money and power right. reasons. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Mm. They want to keep the status quo. They don't mm. want to advance. So you know, this is this is the problem that you know Catherine Fitz and I have gone round and round talking about this problem, because finance capitalism in its in a, in a certain sense is an oxymoron. It's not capitalism in the classical entrepreneurial manufacturing sense. They're not producing anything from the imagination Mm. they are locked into a materialistic view and pushing you know bits of paper or digital bits of information on their computer screens around and making money but not making anything else the true word here is corporatism yeah, the, yeah, it's corporatism. It's corporatism. It's mercantilism, and it, mm. it doesn't go anywhere. It, it it intentionally wants to preserve the status quo to increase its power at everyone else's expense, and that's the classical definition of a closed system, not only of physics but of finance. And we become sacrificed in that system as ants. Exactly. Worker bee. Yeah, we become human resources. Have yeah. you noticed corporations no longer call it the Department of Personnel because then you're dealing with persons, mm-hmm. you know, which is a metaphysical thing. There's only one person and that's a corporation. And that's only that, <laughs> precisely, precisely. Uh, what do they call it? Resources? Yeah. Is not the American word? Yeah, this is the Department of Human Resources. Yeah, right. Well, I've got news for them. I'm not a cow. <laughs> for that matter, the cow is the not cow a cow. The cow isn't a cow either. <laughs> <laughs> no, but they don't have life form. They don't have consciousness. Right. And we are we have such a nuisance. Why not just turn us into uh, transhuman, you know, part machines? That's the perfect wet dream here. 
Yeah, that's exactly what they're up to. That's mm. exactly what they're up to. And it's going to blow up in their faces. You and I both know it. But uh, in the meantime, they're going to try awful hard. Mm-hmm. But the bottom line here is, is regardless of what we say, the fact of the matter is science itself is moving in the direction of taking into consideration and trying to understand what consciousness really is, what personhood is, what all of these ancient metaphysical systems are really talking about. Mm -hmm. And that means it's moving at breakneck speed in a non-materialistic direction while these idiot banksters are clinging to their Bank of England, you know, Victorian worldview that this is the way things really are. And it's not. It's not at all. Either that or they know it's not, but they need us. Right. The masses to think that. Yeah, exactly. I, 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 like I said before, I strongly suspect there are many of them that know that this is not the way things are, mm. but they are afraid of the power that a, a this new science is going to bring. So they have to suppress it and keep it out of people's minds or keep them distracted mm. with phony baloney new age versions of it, mm, you know, mm, mm. <laughs> which is equally dangerous. Yeah. No, of course they are afraid because it's unleashed. If reality is an open system and they're artificially implementing a closed system, it's it's literally blowing all lids. Yeah, exactly. It literally mm-hmm. cracking down all doors. So, yeah. you know, we have to get out of the cave. Well, yes, exactly. And I'm glad you made the allusion to Plato because, yeah. again, this is this is precisely what he's talking about. It's a species of unreality that mm. they're living in. And mm. as a result of that, it's going to come at some point, it's going to come crashing down around their heads. Yep. And this is why I think it's so crucial that people understand that there is really a scientific revolution underway from Tiller's cosmic anthropic principle to to the work of William Tiller, to to all of these ancient doctrines that are coming back in some form or fashion with a new scientific mathematical sheen to them. And it's, it's not going to be stopped regardless of what Bill Gates or the Federal Reserve or anybody else tries to do about it. It simply won't be stopped. Mm. No, I agree. Uh, I can f- I can sense on my tailbone that the <laughs> grip of the snake's mouth mm-hmm. is slipping. So we let's let's contribute to open this also in part two. Uh, I, I think we can. You know, we've been geeking about <laughs> uh, for many people very technical stuff. In part two, now we're going to tie it more into history. Okay. And see how this stuff has been applied in reality. Okay. So, so let's, let's take, take a little, a little break, break, Joseph. Uh, All right. Do that when we come back. I'll see you in about five minutes. Yep. 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 All of our files are free, and will remain free. If you like the show, you can show support by donating one dollar to help with expenses. Just use the PayPal link on our website, YouTube channel. Or Facebook page. Thanks. Thanks.